Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, I worked on my story. I pulled things out of thin air. I dragged stuff out of chaos. The moment when working of working of diary material as a basis, I begin to invent, like the first moment on an unsupported two-wheeler or ice skates, letting go, doing it on my own. That's an excerpt from one of many elliptical moments that fly in and fly out from Helen Garner's collection of material from her diaries spanning 1987 to 1995, titled, One Day I'll Remember This. Helen Garner is the acclaimed author of novels, short stories, screenplays, long-form articles and essays, and, of course, numerous non-fiction titles. Her sharp use of language and mastery of form has left an indelible imprint on Australian writing and writers. And she joins me now for a very special long-form live-streamed episode to discuss her writing life, and more specifically, her recently published second volume of Diaries, Helen Garner, a very warm welcome to Backstory. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. It's happy to be here. Well, I was talking to you uh, off air, Helen, and I was lucky enough to be able to interview you uh, last time you published your a collection of your diaries, which was the Yellow Notebook, and that collection uh, predates the one that you've just you've just released, which is this lovely edition here that I have in hard case. And as you can see from all my many notes, I had a great time going through it. Um, again, I was struck by how you could read this this book, and I found myself skipping around. It's sort of like a writerly, uh, readerly, I should say, Rorschach test for what it is that you want to find in someone's words. I, I particularly, obviously, was interested in, you know, in, in your kind of musings about writing. So I'm intrigued, Helen. When you went back through old Helen or past Helen, what things did you pick up afresh? You mean about the writing parts uh, of it you know, or anything your, at all? Your diaries, like what? Because I was really intrigued by something you said um, in in a kind of very sort of meta way. You talk about reading old diaries and that actually uh, you don't relate to the, the character in those pages, that you don't relate to this, this story about love um, that they're talking about, the person that they're in love with. You don't even have a feeling about that anymore and you realise, you know, life is for the moment. So I wonder what it's like to reacquaint yourself with, you know, these old diaries now as mm. you've gone through with a real editor's eye. What, what kind of things really struck you afresh? Hmm. My foolishness, I suppose, is when I was younger. It's, uh, it's actually quite shocking to read um, a contemporaneous account of, of a period of your life that, that's passed with all the detail uh, that you've forgotten. I mean, naturally, we all have... Um, memories of our lives uh, they sometimes we think we remember our life as a as a stream running along sometimes we think of our past as just a series of quick snaps quick tiny moments but um, when you get both of them at once you know in a, a record that you yourself have um, have kept it's uh, often I mean some of it's familiar some of it is uh, really uh, refreshing to read. Some little moment. Usually, it's a, a, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in this book about weather and climate. I mean, not climate, but you know what's outside the window or what happens when you walk along the street. Mostly, I, I love those bits and they make me feel happy. But the bits that I find you know, mortifying are you know all the sort of mushy crap about being in love, which never, never. Um, survives I mean because it's because being in love is a kind of um well I was about to say a manic state sometimes it's manic but it's a state in which you make a lot of you can make a lot of terrible terrible mistakes 
and to to look back at at the contemporaneous account of, of a series of um, actions can be really quite shocking. You know, to see how how uh, obsessed you were and how you walked past again and again moments where a person with their wits about them would have said, hmm, I don't think I'll go on with this. I think this would be a good draw to go out through. And, of course, you don't because that's the whole point of love, that it's meant to sort of sweep you along into whatever it's meant to sweep you along into. I don't know what that is. It's so interesting you say that because when you do write about love and, and you know, your your partner or partners, you, you really seem very clear-eyed. You don't write about them uh, with that sort of glaze that love sometimes puts over people. Uh, you get this real insight into their flaws, into their pomposities, into their, you know, into the genuine them, um, which, you know, when you love someone, you ameliorate, but you don't on the page. Uh, you're, mm. if you've, the insightful writer's sharp knife is always applied even to the people that you are or maybe especially to the people that you write about here that are obviously those closest to you. Mm. Well, that, that's a very interesting observation. I, I suppose um, it doesn't, but what you point out as um, sort of a sharp-eyed noticing of things about a person, somehow... Uh, in the early stages of, of being in love with someone, you can notice you can notice yourself blue in the face, but it doesn't affect this uh, passionate drive that you you're in. You're in a different world when you're in love, even if you think, "Oh, look, that was a bit mean," or "Why was he so X?" You know, naming some unfortunate characteristic. Um, but you, there's some other current that you're being carried along by. Uh, at those times and so is the other person I mean I, I always feel that the other person is is noticing me just as mercilessly as I'm noticing them we do one does but that doesn't because uh... the thing is if, if if you took those those little moments of what you sharply notice about another person as the whole story of their character, you'd be awfully lonely. <laughs> I mean, the world would be you would have, you would be completely solipsistically um, um, adrift, as it were. I think so. It'd be you, you people, and the older you get, the more you notice this that that people, everybody's got their faults and their little kinks of nature, and uh, you can love someone in spite of those things. I think is that what I'm saying. Well, I mean, look, uh, clearly that's the case. I think th there's something else that you say in this where you're you're going out to a film with someone and, you know, you are determined that you cannot love a happy ending, that you need to, <laughs> that you need to squeeze the kind of, you know, the hard or hurtful truths out of those things. And I feel like there is that, um, that sense of, uh, that repellent sense in the, in, in terms of how you write, where you're obviously in love with beauty, the beauty of words, um, the beauty of things around you, but you pull yourself back. Um, mm. I remember listening to an interview with you where you sort of said your anxiety is in adverbs. Um, and I wonder as well, is it also in, in you know, these other ideas of, um, you know, maybe overly fuzziness or, you know, indulging in a happy ending? Are these also mm. things that writers should be wary of? Well, there's happy endings that are earned by the story and there are happy endings that are just kind of gummed on the end because you can't stand to see the truth or to say the truth about a situation. Um, obviously, unlike everybody, I, I love a happy ending. I love a, I love a story that resolves itself in a way that's either graceful or beautiful or or resigned in a comical way, or that some in some stories or books you, you get a sort of an explosion of joy at the at, at the end, and that that's a wonderful thing. But a happy ending, um, yeah, the very idea of it seems um, not complex enough for me. I, I think that's what I'm saying. 
Yeah. I think, um, I mean, we're reading through these diaries and, of course, um, these are, you know, small excerpts from life. Um, some things may have been left out, obviously. You really do get the sense that this sharp observation of yours um, defies that kind of simplicity in in life, but does cut through to the beauty of it as well. Uh, you also have this this wonderful sense of language, its pacing, its ability to evoke. And even though these were originally not written for public view, I remember in at one moment you reflect that you love your notebooks, you loved your typed up notebooks, and you think of them as sharper and in some ways better than. Uh, say a novel, um, and in mm -hmm. fact, that you want to you want to knock down that hierarchy that puts the novel above such writing. Do mm. you, in fact, feel like this this your diary is in fact some of your greatest work? Well, I don't know if, about greatest or great, but well, the work I, you're uh, proudest of, perhaps. Well, I, I, I you know I do feel a sort of pride of it, but I, I can't exactly put my finger on. I, I, I know the passage you're referring to where somewhere in the diary I said, you know, that I picked up an old notebook and looked at it and thought uh, there was something so fresh in there because it wasn't, it wasn't when I was writing it I was free. I, I wasn't trying to write a novel. I, I didn't have that sort of uh, the anxiety of the demands of form hanging over me. And plainly... Um, I don't want you know. I'm grumbling away about the novel being placed at the often placed at, at the the top of the hierarchy of forms. I actually think poetry is way up there above the novel, but um, but I I do feel that there are, and I think this is what's been happening in recent years, and it may be something to do with the number of women that are now uh, confident to put their work out there and finding that they are you know forcing the world to accept them, their work. Uh, I think maybe that's one of the things about women's writing that uh, has sort of blown some of that rigidity out of the water so that uh, a work that's fragmentary, a work like, for example, Jenny Offal's work, you know, which is um, is, is fragmented in a way that I just totally adore and, and respond to on a very deep level. I, I find I, I love fragmented things and I love the way that your mind will pause and then take a breath and then leap to the next one and leap to the next one and then you can stop for a while and you can go away and stew on it mm -hmm. and you aren't at the mercy of this overmastering um, sort of muscle-bound form that's kind of keeping you your nose to the grindstone, which uh, I think in a great novel can be a wonderful thing, you know, if you just hand yourself over to, to that mighty stream which has been very consciously created. But by the same token, there's just that joy in, in 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 the smallness of things and how they add up to something that you couldn't quite have predicted. I did wonder when I was reading this if I if I hadn't started to think of the novel as a life support system for these <laughs> these kind of you know serendipitous moments of of sudden realization, um, and you just distilled it all for me. So you know when I open this show, I always. <clears throat> go through the books that I read to try and find that moment in the book that that really that speaks to me that says something that tells the audience something and I was absolutely floored when I read this about where I would start because there were so many of those moments and I again to refer to another interview that you did I remember you saying that that you were surprised when you you released your first collection of of uh, diary excerpts that at how not unique you were. And I think oh. by that what you meant is that you struck on this universality, that you gave people uh, some, you know, a language to describe certain moments and feelings. That is really the mark of a great writer, though. That's what you do. You, you say, you speak a thought that we couldn't articulate before or, as I prefer to think of it, you, say, you, you articulate a thought, I wish I'd had. <laughs> That's funny. I, I well, actually, you know, I'm surprised to find um, uh, in um, sort of personal responses I, I've got to these two books, these two books of diaries, how many uh, um, people say this could have been my marriage, or I completely you, you have compl you've said things that I couldn't quite get into words about something I'm deeply that's deeply familiar to me, and that's what I meant when I. 
uh, had that feeling after the first, after Yellow Notebook came out, just that feeling that I that I wasn't alone, you know, that I'm just not this weirdo who's hanging her guts out on the line, but uh, that the things I, that are important to me and that struck me as important enough to record and to sort of work at recording are, are actually things that I, I share with gazillion people on the planet. And, and that, that to me is completely thrilling. Yeah, I mean, it does, I, you know, communing with a, a writer in some ways. And, and we're living in an era, of course, of uh, people sort of wearing their hearts on their sleeve or ostensibly doing yeah. it. Uh, blogging um, led to, you know, of course, social media, which is a much more immediate form of putting things out there. But there's a highly curated element uh, to that as well. When you're sitting with a book, when you're kind of feeling like you're having a moment with another writer's mind, there's something so deeply intimate about mm. that feeling. To mm. add to that, the layer of of it being a diary, uh, that that does give you another kind of level of engagement. Do you mm. feel like, and I'm interested in this as well, um, I think you might have even... Uh, referred to Chekhov's uh, notebooks, I think, in this book as well. Mm. Do you find, is there another writer's diaries that you read yourself or have read yourself or have similar feelings about? I I haven't read a huge number of notebooks or diaries. I mean, naturally, I've read Virginia Woolf's uh, and uh, first of that that little one that, that her husband pulled out of the biggest one, the one called A Writer's diary I think I read that way back in the 70s and I just adored it and then then I've read the the bigger the bigger fatter one and I love I love to kind of wander and ramble in 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 the book and I find that her uh, her mind and her not just her mind but her way of noticing things uh very congenial and I think most people who read it do but I've read um one person's notebooks that I really liked is Peter Handke, the Austrian writer, who's uh, lately fallen from favour because he got involved with a whole lot of really scary um, uh, Balkan guys after the after the Balkan Wars happened, and he made a lot of really scary statements that and people began to sort of I suppose cancel him. But there's a book of his called The Weight of the World that is W E I G H T, which I loved and and found. Um, really kind of inspiring. I think I quoted from him once or twice. And um, though it's actually it's interesting to think, yeah, I've read Chekhov's notebooks and I've read a big fat diary by a guy called whose name I've forgotten, a Polish guy. This is really embarrassing. And But I, I read, I read a, a, in the Times Literary Supplement, I, I read one of those things where people say what they're going to read on this particular summer and and this woman had said oh I'm going to read um or Gombrowicz or whoever the hell the guy was his diaries that had just been published she said and this is what made me want to read them and she she quoted this little bit where he said um what I did today was I went to the post office and then when I got home I made myself a sandwich and then I ate it I thought god I love that that's that complete casualness and concentration on that sort of pleasure taken in making it completely a note that you would think would be completely boring afterwards and, and of no interest whatsoever to another human being suddenly just because of the light his attention fell upon this sandwich he didn't even say what it was like <laughs> but she said when I read that I'm go- I went straight out and bought the book and I thought oh uh, that is a wonderful thing. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's the premise of social media, isn't it, really? That like these kind of casual thoughts that we have are things that people really want to know, um, particularly if they've got a kind of oddness to them or, um, you know, add a sort of note of humour. You you have these these little sort of um, snippets of ideas that, that really do drop in um, for the reader, um, including I think there was one where you talk about that you've been spending, uh, you know, <clears throat> you're swimming in a in a kind of milieu of people who are, you know, for generations or for years you've been swimming in a milieu of people who are younger than you. Yeah. And I thought that was a really interesting reflection at that time, particularly because you then talked about your then um, current partner being your own age and that not necessarily being mm. something you were used to. I would love you to speak to that because there is these themes that run throughout it of, um, of you know, 
being someone who's an established writer who's in that that kind those kind of years of their life when they're not young but they're certainly not old either. Uh, mm. Not quite sure what you're asking me there. No, I, I guess just this kind of, I mean, I guess that spoke to me as well. It's like, is that, you know, that that these kinds of things that strike you where you think about how am I living my life and mm. Um, mm. and where do I oh, you mean when You mean when you sort of take a step back and have a look? Yeah. Or, or else something, well, there is one thing that this brought to mind was that I, in, the, in this diary, I described going to lunch with some friends of my generation and, uh, and talk about how we all sat at the table and told stories to make each other laugh. And then I said something like this, and, but I was shocked by the, the nastiness of what one of the men was saying, you know, the, the nasty, spiteful things that he was saying. And, and then I said, I am used to living with teenagers. They have no, they have no bitterness. Yes. And when I came back across that, when I found that in the diary, I was really surprised I'd forgotten having ever thought that or noticed it, but I thought that it was one of those moments of um, it would never occur to me now to think, why do I like teenagers? It's because they've got no bitterness. But it, it, it came to me out of seeing the bitterness that people of my generation sometimes display and suffer from and, and feeling glad that I wasn't... Uh, that I hadn't yet reached that stage or perhaps that I didn't have to live with that because I I lived with you know my daughter and the and the the, the guy who I call in the in the book the law student and so these are people who was just starting out in life and they were sort of eager for experience and they had not um, they hadn't become disillusioned and sour and uh, always looking on the dark side and that's one of the things I just loved about being with people younger than me but of course now people, I mean, I'll be eighty in two years, and 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 people are younger than me who are only seventy. You know, and that seems quite young to me. It's also this so I- these things change. The idea of looking at your generation out of time or your milieu out of time, it kind of reminded me of the start of or, or portions from Orlando, uh, the Virginia Woolf novel, which mm. I was obsessed with for a very long time, where you're kind of... That's a wonderful book. Yeah. yeah. She does reflect upon that in terms of, you know, a writerly capturing of the spirit of the age, I think, is what she talks mm. about. But mm. what I love about this is that you do have this kind of commentary on the spirit of the age, both from within it and from without it. Um, as a writer as well and I think you know getting these reflections um, of you at a particular point in time is really interesting looking back how do you feel now about those those times do you think you see them differently than that person Uh, do you think that you actually are noticing that you were noticing things about that time that you Mm. didn't realize oh yes there's a lot of um Yes, it's quite surprising when you, you go back over something that's, what, 30 years, uh, did you write 30 years ago, that you you, you notice, um, well, there's a lot of little morsels in there about political things that were happening at the same time. I mean, things that I saw on TV, and like, um, uh, you know, Tiananmen Square and uh, the, the falling of the Berlin Wall and things like that. And just when I came across those, I was really, really pleased to find they were there because I, I never set out when keeping the diary to keep any sort of record of the polit- political life around me. I mean, I wasn't, that, I've never found, uh, that's never been a sort of central interest of mine. But I was, um, I was kind of happy to realise that that my, um, my mind was kind of porous, if you like, that those things did find their way in and they kind of dated in a way that I feel happy about. Um, they place it in time. I mean, like, for example, I'm sitting with um, the person I called V in the book who uh, who I was married to and, uh, and, a, and a woman of our generation and we were watching um, Kerry Packer being interviewed on TV and the, th- the three of us had different responses to him. And I said, oh, he's horrible. He's a horrible toad-like huge bully. And the other woman who was there said, oh, I think he's marvellous. I'm just swept away by his power. And, and at the time I thought, really? And so I thought, oh, I'll just write that down. And, and, and the, the V, the person called V, said, oh, yeah, and he was talking about Robert Maxwell, who was another very powerful media guy, the father of... Uh, 
Yulene Maxwell, but be that as it may. And he said, yes, I, I, isn't it marvellous the way he bestrides the world? And I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, there are some people who actually admire that stuff, which repels me. But uh, so that little, that little incident um, is kind of illuminating to me about myself, but also about those two people and about the fact that some people admire power and, and are drawn to it. Uh, and which is rather a mysterious um, uh, phenomenon, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I kind of, I, I, there is something that I've been dying to ask you as well because um, I was thinking about um, there's this Heinrich Boll short story that I became obsessed with. We're just going to talk about my obsessions. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Um, I'm sure said, we share them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's called Merkers Collected Silences. And in it, oh, I know that one. It's yes. such a great story. Um, there's this, um, you know, a, a, a radio editor who is, it's after the, the Second World War um, in Germany, so you can imagine. Um, and there's a very pompous radio announcer and this radio uh, producer has been tasked with cutting and changing his old speeches and not just to cut out things uh, about where he said positive stuff about Hitler, no doubt, but also to change the actual, um, I think it's like... Uh, the, in fact, the tense of, of the sentences or something as, as specific as that. He wanted to have one whole kind of tense removed <laughs> from <laughs> his speeches. And I, I thought about that and I thought, you're putting your diaries out there and you openly state, um, you know, you've said it in interviews, you say it yourself in your diary that you don't want to shy from hard truths, you don't want to hide from things that you're uncomfortable with. What... What is it like putting things out there that you may no longer agree with or that may not, not reflect mm. uh, your thoughts anymore? I mean, people mm. delete tweets now that they don't want to... They really do. Well, I mean, extraordinary. they oh, can I've, come I've back to on social you. media, so all this is astonishing and and, and um, weird to me, the whole... But you, they delete tweets. Yeah, well, well, so something that you, you might have said that was ill-advised when you were, you know, just un you know, mitigated putting things out there when you were a young person and you're ashamed of it now and you don't want that mm. to represent you. How, you know, how do you feel about letting this stuff sit? Because it's it's a real act of bravery. Well, I, I don't see it as an act of bravery so much as I'm not scared, put it that way. I mean, a bravery is a different thing from not being scared. I, I just think, okay, well, that's what I thought then. And if it was a memoir, that's, I think this is a point I might have made to you in our previous interview, um, if it was a memoir, it would be very tempting for me to say, oh, look what I said there. Uh, I wouldn't say that now, but I'm going to place it now so that you can see that now I'm more sensitive and more virtuous and I have, you know, resolved certain aspects of my nature and look at that back there and wasn't I awful? I think, well, that to me is a kind of cop-out. I think... Uh, for example, in this in this book, um, I go to no. This is in the previous book. I, I drove up to uh, Uluru with my father, uh, and Uluru in those days was known still as Ayers Rock, and I climbed it. And this was in the what mid eighties, I suppose. And I climbed it with the guy that I met at the base. We just climbed to the top and. And it was a most staggering and wonderful and extraordinary experience for me. There was no one there because it was dawn. And and I I felt grateful for that and um, glad about it. But then, of course, when uh, some young journalist um, interviews me about the book, he says, um, didn't, I can't remember what he actually said about it, but I, he said, I noticed that you, uh, you climbed Uluru. And I said, well, uh, you know, back in those days it was not a common thing. We didn't, the whole idea of not climbing Uluru and it's being uh, somehow outrageous to Indigenous sensitivities and, and spirits uh, was not a common thing. I mean, we, that's not the way people thought about it in those days. And I thought, well, I'll just put it in there. And so he mentioned this. I gave, my, gave some sort of answer to it. And when the piece was published, the uh, sub the subs had put a title: Ghana refuses to apologize to regret having climbed Uluru, and I thought, oh fuck you! I thought I'm not. I think that is absolutely pathetic. I 
what my thought is about having climbed Uluru is not in the book. It's not there because the book is not, the form of the book does not allow me to comment on that. Now, I could have cut it out, but I didn't want to cut it out because it was a true thing that happened. And I thought, well, let people think what they want. Uh, I'm not going to apologise for it. If, if an Indigenous person came to me and said and, and laid it before me, that would be a different matter. But I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to censor myself in advance. That's what I'm saying. And I think there's a hell of a lot of that going on at the moment and it really revolts and sickens me the way people are just constantly traumatised. Like yesterday I said this and now I'll have to get down on my knees in case someone might have been offended. I think what is the matter with this, this insane hypersensitivity and self-censorship and, and eagerness to censor other people's quite genuine uh, descriptions or accounts of their ways of seeing the world. I find this completely anti-life ludicrous and grotesque, and that's my statement. I do want to come back to that, definitely. Um, but uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And today I'm talking with Helen Garner, one of Australia's most uh, well-known and acclaimed authors, about her collection of diaries spanning 1987 to 1995. One day I'll remember this. Uh, but we're going to play a few sponsorship announcements, um, take a quick break, and we'll be back again uh, with Helen Garner after that. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and today I am doing a special long form interview live streamed with Helen Garner. Uh, one of Australia's most acclaimed authors. Uh, we are focusing on her collection of diaries uh, spanning 1987 to 1995. This is my very well uh, bookmarked copy. Uh, it's called uh, One Day I'll Remember This. Uh, Helen, just before we took a quick break, uh, you were talking about um, putting the things that you have said and done up unvarnished, um, unchanged and, and not pretending that they didn't happen, not changing what actually happened. But I am intrigued, actually, because we all change our views on things and we all change how we look at things, uh, which is quite a different thing than what you were you were talking about. And in this book, uh, you do reflect on a, uh, a particular period um, of time in 1995 when you published the book The First Stone. Uh, there was quite a reaction to it. And you talk in, in some of your entries about your feelings about the kind of reactions there. I'm really interested now looking back um, and perhaps reading some of, the, um, some of the things that were said, some of the things you experienced, what your thoughts now are about that episode. You mean about what happened at Ormond College yeah. and... Well, not so much that, but the reaction to it, oh, yeah. your mm -hmm. own feelings about it, because mm. you have just put here... I mean, it's tempting for the modern reader to think that these are comments that you're making now, but they're not. They're, of course, diary entries from mm. 1995. So I'm interested with now 25 years, um, you know, past mm. this event, what your feelings are when it's not so raw. Like, how do mm. you reflect upon that period? Okay. Yes, well, I. It's, a, it's actually a very complicated time, and I, when I got to that point in in the diaries that, that that form the basis of this book, I was quite surprised to find not very much about it in there about the experience of writing it and publishing it, and I realised that was because as soon as I started work on it as a um, a project, I started a, a journal which was uh, only about that book. And that's what I always do with those big, um, you know, those big long projects, especially the ones involving trials uh, and court cases. I have a special, a, a big notebook that's devoted purely to that, and it's like a diary. That every day I write, this is what happened today, this is what I learned, this is what I felt, and so forth. And that becomes the spine of the book. Um, so I was surprised before I remembered that uh, to find quite little. Uh, material in this diary but and and what most of what is in the diary is about the reception of the book which was extremely hostile uh the, the that is the reception that it got from particularly um university feminists 
And I look back on the book and I see that it was extremely provocative. I mean, part of, you know, I, I, the last few pages of it are really a red rag to a bull. But the book itself, I don't think, is, um, I think it's much more complex than people gave it credit for at the time. I think one thing that happened was that there's nothing ever anybody loves, that people love so much as watching somebody renege on a previous statement. I think people thought, people rushed out and bought this book because they thought, yo, this is a feminist who's now turning her back on feminism and she's going to kick the shit out of feminism. And I think that's one reason why the book sold such a lot of copies because people wanted to witness some kind of, um, you know, what they imagine will be destructive behaviour. But um, I I was shocked by um, the savagery, or the personal savagery, I think, of, of some of the responses. Uh, I made a couple of enemies. Uh, there are still people who cut me dead in public places. Um, I've just got used to that. It, uh, it happened quite a lot at the time. Dirty looks through cafe windows, you know, scorching scorching looks and horrible letters and things like that but um, it, it was actually extremely um, ugly and painful for a while but um, I, uh, I, what I what I learned from it was that you several things I learned firstly that there's uh, it's that that to be hated by people who don't know you and, and some who do know you, is uh, quite sort of strengthening, you know, puts iron in your soul. And if you can survive that, you're free afterwards. That's one thing. The second thing is this is something that came to me while you were talking about uh, how it, it feels to publish in an unvarnished way things that you thought 30 years ago. Uh, I have never wanted to have the last word. That's very important to me, to understand and to acknowledge that what I'm thinking about something at any given moment is cannot possibly be the last word on that matter. And I think one thing I've learned in my longish life is that the struggle between men and women is eternal. It's never going to be resolved. It's one of those struggles that women make advances and, and many of Wonderful things have changed as a result of feminist activity and feminist thinking. But um, you see, when I was a feminist, when I, I was first a feminist back in the very early 70s, I mean, I, and I'm sure some of the others, really thought we were going to change things. I mean, I we were so naive. We, I remember thinking if, firstly, it was like coming up out of um a fog or out of water and sticking my head out and looking around, taking the first deep breath of my life and thinking, now I get it. This explains everything. And, and that that's the convert's feeling about whatever she or he has been converted to. It's, it's like, you know, a born-again Christian. Now I get it. This theory or someone who, who becomes a communist or whatever the, the thing is that they're converted to this way of thinking or a world picture. You think, now I get it. This is why I've always felt so terrible. Now I'm going to work on this and when I've and when I get with all the other people I'm going to work with, we're going to change the world and we're going to explain to men what they do that's making us so miserable. And they'll go, oh, oh, is that what you mean? Oh, I get it. Oh, well, we won't do that anymore. I mean, really, that is sounds completely pathetic. But that was the way we thought. We thought we, that you could change people's minds by argument. And plainly there are some things, some minds that can be changed by argument, but not nearly as many as we hope there are. And so other things have to be, other things have to be changed by force or by changing the law or the, the long, slow, grinding process of change. Um, but the, the wonderful explosions of illumination and a few and far between. And I think for that reason, partly out of that comes my feeling that nothing I say on any subject is, is the last word. And so people can attack as, as they will and disagree with me as they will. And I, my aim is not to, not to take things as an insult, not to be insulted by somebody disagreeing with me.
Do you feel like, uh, so to take that idea of you not being the last word, do you feel like because you are someone who people have had these relationships with in their mind, with with things you've written, with uh, with works you've made, the fact that you are you were such an enormous voice and remain such an enormous voice in uh, Australian literature, that there is this real expectation that you will be that person always, that you will be someone that that people will always like and always agree with. Do you think that there is that that expectation of a public figure that you've once felt allied with, that you will always feel allied with? Uh, and what do you do with that? What do I do with it or what? Yeah, other, what, what, what does do they... one do with that? Because surely yeah, you've also okay. experienced this. Uh, I think it is a very human phenomenon that you feel like, even though um, you know, I've read this book by Helen Garner. I feel like I know Helen Garner. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And suddenly Helen Garner's not acting like Helen Garner yeah. or the Helen Garner I want her to be. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've experienced that uh, with your own um, relationships with public figures. That yes, are, I have. Yeah. Yes. So, so what, Indeed. So, well, that, that's, why, uh, that's why you've got one has to be flexible. I mean, you, you, it, it's quite... I get letters from people saying, you know, I'm really disappointed that you wrote such and such a book. How could you have done that? Uh, And then somebody um, who wrote, who when the first stone was reissued on some 25th anniversary or something, and and, uh, a journalist, quite a well-known journalist, wrote this, what I thought was an absolutely soppy article saying, oh, you know, my copy of Monkey Grip, it was all bedraggled and torn and I loved it and it was such an important book. And then she turns around and publishes the first stone and and then, and though, so the rest of the, the article was, you know, an attack on my views. That's fine with me, but I just thought all that stuff up the front about how I used to think she was so fabulous and then she kind of turned on me is just deeply pathetic. I mean, grow up. People don't have to stay the same and if they did, what sort of an artist would you be if you if you painted yourself into a corner like that? So I guess the question is as well, if you are, you know, as you are such an, uh, an enormous voice uh, to so many people, is there also a responsibility that comes with that? And uh, and if so, it, you've sort of, uh, you've said, you've more than intimated, you've stated that, that your responsibility is to truth, to the words, to the work. But is there mm. also a responsibility to the audience? No. Not, not, not the. I don't think one has a responsibility to sort of stay, stay with what what you thought was the case thirty years ago. Uh, you, I think a, a writer's or an artist's responsibility is to be constantly. Um, responsive to the way things are now, 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 at this moment, now. It doesn't mean you lose contact with the past or with traditions or with um, the stabilities of the past, but you, you it, it's a terrible thing to, to sort of get stuck and you're no use to anyone if you get stuck. Then you become just like this this sort of little statue that's over there and and, and people that, to which people attribute sort of magical powers and that that's just ridiculous I think any artist worth their salt has got to be has got to be feeling the way things are going and find a way to um, respond to that in their work not necessarily by talking about it directly but you've got to absorb the currents of what's going on so in and, that, you, and your and your currents within yourself, you know the the changes that happen within a person, and how they they sort of meld or, or, or clash with what's going on outside. Now, I I want to talk uh, a little bit about a slightly more uh, liminal or, or slight element that runs through this collection. Um, you mentioned that there's those little moments that people gravitate towards, like, for example, someone, um, you know, mentioning a sandwich or mentioning the weather. Uh, for me, it was you mentioning what you listen to uh, when you're writing or that you what you were listening to at the time. And I think throughout, I'm going to say 1998, you seem to be listening to a lot of Bartok. And I think at one stage you even say, because many people might not know that you also have written screenplays and uh, and you have written a number and you've and in this um, in this book you talk about writing the last days of Shainu, um and that you think that uh, that a certain um, a, a certain uh, track by Bartok uh, 
really is the mood that you wanted to to get for that writing. So mm. I'm sort of intrigued. Do you use music as a way into your writing, or is is there a soundtrack you're listening to now that uh, that's inspiring? No, I don't. I I I, I actually listen to. I've been rather surprised at how little music, what little music I listen to during the lockdown. Somehow I hardly listen to music at all, and that's pretty unusual. But no, I don't. For example, I would never listen to music while I was working, and I wouldn't. Um, it's more. It's more what you're talking about there that I'm trying to figure out for myself a sort of a mood or, or a tone that I'm trying to get in a piece of writing, and I might just accidentally listen to a bit of Bartok and think, "Oh yeah, that's what I want. I want that sort of spiky, weird, uncomfortable feeling." Uh, or if I'm if I'm in a mess in my head, I might go and listen to some Bach. I might listen to some counterpoint, you know, something that's two hands working against each other. And those are those are things that I I wouldn't kind of consciously try to model what I'm writing on on music, but it's really more sort of mood and what sort of instruments are used, whether it's fully orchestral or just a a piano or a trumpet. Yeah, so a sort of sense of mood is coming from the music. The other, the other thing that I, of course, loved was the references to what books you were reading throughout, um, you know, throughout the the times that are covered in this diary. And I, I remember in another interview that you did where you talked about that you often forget the books that you've read. Um, and I really relate to this because I read such a lot. Um, mm. And I, I'd say this is probably one of those things that happens when you do read a lot, that you actually forget some of the specifics or you forget that you've read the book. Very often someone will say to me, have you read blah, blah, blah book? And I'll just go, no, as a default. And then <laughs> they start to describe it and I'm like, oh, yeah, I read that and actually I interviewed <laughs> the author and then I feel terrible because, uh, you know, at the time as you also say I loved it or I was yeah. very engaged yeah. with it. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of thought about this as well where you sort of said you feel like, um, you know, you read you know, you were surrounded by words, you read books like you were swimming through them, that it was diff difficult to differentiate the little droplets uh, mm. as well. Is, is this part of a writing life? Um, you know, is it that you are um, accumulating these influences sometimes without even realising it and then the ghosts of them end up in, in your work? Mm. Oh, yes. I, I think you, I, I think most influence, people, when you ask a writer who's influenced them, I mean, if anybody asks me that, I always go blank. I find it a very hard thing to answer, but I I think and then after after the interview, I all, all sorts of thoughts come to me. Um, but I I think that most influence is uh, semi-conscious. You know, I mean, I, especially if you're the kind of person who, since childhood, has just read and read and read and read, and that's the sort of main thing you do in life is to read. You can't possibly. Uh, have a sharp memory of everything you read. Have you have you read that book called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read? No, I Is haven't. It, but I, I recall it's marvelous <clears throat> because it's, it's. I mean, it sounds like a joke book, but it's actually really quite sophisticated and and it relieves a lot of anxiety. But I think in the diary I quoted Gerald Manane, uh, the Australian writer Gerald Manane, saying um, that he often doesn't. Rem he, he read a lot of books and that he doesn't remember in detail, but what he does remember is how he felt while he was reading them and sort of the effect that the, the book had on him. And it's as if each book that's any good sort of radiates a little world and you get into it for a while and you stay in that world. And sometimes it deeply affects you uh, and it, it stays sort of on your nerve ends for a long time and 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 you and that's how and it, its influence might might manifest in your work. For example, Raymond Carver. I read a lot of Raymond Carver when he was, you know, first publishing, and I just he really had a, an enormous effect on me. I didn't, I didn't, um, I wasn't reading him on purpose to, to write like him, but I was so thunderstruck by how little there is on the page, and yet how detailed this story is. I mean, he, he's a writer who. He, the, the, the Raymond Carver world is one that I can walk into in my memory and my imagination. I don't may not remember the name of the book 
or the name of the story, but there's something, some kind of gas that he's working exudes that I gratefully breathe and it's still there. I want to also talk just finally because it looks like we're, and it's amazing, nearly (laughs) at the end of our hour, just really quickly, um, Helen, if you don't mind sort of saying or, you know, giving me a sense here of what it's like uh, to put your diaries out there because I remember interviewing an author once who who wrote incredibly personal stuff about her her life, her loves, her mental health, um, but she said she absolutely would not share stuff about her cat because that was, <laughs> that was just for her. Her cat was just for her. That was too personal. Um, and so I'm really intrigued by that because we have a very different sense of what it is that you're exposing yourself. And you are a writer who's often drawn on the very personal aspects of your life. But is there are, are there things that people might not think of that are far too personal for you to be putting out there in your diaries? Oh yeah, so people think I've scrapped the bottom of the barrel that I haven't. No, there's plenty. Um, I couldn't like just offhand tell you what it was, but I can tell you that there's a lot of stuff in the di- in the diaries that I can't. But it, it wasn't usually because it was too personal about me. It was um, because it was, I felt that it, it was about another person and that it was nobody's business. It wasn't, it wasn't anybody's public business. And the fact that I, there are some things I know or that people have told me about themselves that I, while they're telling them to me, I know that I would never, ever repeat this thing. Uh, and some of these things I don't write down. Um, sometimes people say to me, I'm telling you this, do not ever write about this. And I say, okay, I won't. And so those are the things I don't write down. I don't even jot them down. But it's my, that's mostly what I would. Um, and there are some things that are beyond my power to, to articulate too. And there are a, a sort of certain um, psychological states which I, uh, I don't know, I don't have words for. And I, I think most writers would, would have would say that too about themselves but uh, but I um I'm trying to think would a if there's any there's, I can't think of any actual subject on which I would feel I shouldn't or don't want to Mm, that's an interesting question. Yes. Well, look, <laughs> uh, and it's and one that sadly <laughs> we will not be able to uh, pick up more on because we're coming very quickly to the end of the show. Uh, Helen, thank you so much uh, for being so incredibly generous with your time and with sharing your thoughts and uh, your literal diaries. Um, so thank you very much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks. It's always good to talk to you, Mel. It's thank such you. a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.